Our first reading comes from Philippians, the third chapter. Even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 21st chapter. Jesus said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? They said to Jesus, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. What does it mean to be the best? 
I mean, sure, if I mean to be the best at something, that just means you do it better than anyone else is doing it, maybe better than anyone else ever has. But what about the best period, the best in general, the kind of person you'd really want to listen to, the kind of person that ought to be in charge, the kind of person you'd want to follow, maybe even good enough to live your life for that person? Well, I'm trying to figure out who the best would be. We have to consider our tendency to idolize ourselves. I mean that in the literal theological sense, as in we make an idol of our own self, put ourselves in the place of God in our day-to-day lives, our decision-making, and so on. How we imagine the best is often just some version of ourselves. You know, maybe it's the version that does all the things I like to do, uh, but does them a bit better, and maybe... They like all the things I like and value all the things I value, but honor those likes and values better than I can. And maybe it's not a different version at all. I mean, on some days, uh, yeah, I already am the best. Well, that or because there's no better version of me out there, we'll have to settle for me. This self-idolatry can be blown up to cover a whole group, right? either idolizing the group as a whole, or maybe one leader within the group and to represent it. That's what happens in this parable from Jesus. Now, I know it doesn't quite sound like it. You didn't hear anybody say anything about me. But idolatry, Luther said, is the root of all sin, and idolatry of self is about the most common one there is. So this owner gets his vineyard going, does all the work, preps it, and then leases it out. You know, he owns it. He's in, invested in it. Now he's hoping to turn a profit on it, what we might call a passive income source nowadays. And the tenants decide it'd really be best if, it, if they weren't just borrowing the vineyard, but if they controlled it. If it wasn't the landowners anymore, but theirs. If that other person was no longer in charge, but we in our group were. So when the landowner sends someone as his representative, at harvest time, it's time to collect some of that passive income, some of the harvest of the produce. The tenants kill him and beat another and so on, and then kill yet another and another until finally the landowner sends his son, thinking that will work. But the same thing happens again. So Jesus asks, with this group of people taking it upon themselves to be the authority over the vineyard, uh, much to the chagrin of the vineyard owner, what will this vineyard owner do next? They answer that the owner will kill those tenants and put someone else there instead. It's not a too thinly veiled parable. Jesus is talking about how God the Father set creation in motion and left humanity to tend to it, to aid in fulfilling the purpose of the world through the work we're called to do. Over time, God sent people, prophets perhaps, and the world rejected them, one after another. Sure, maybe, maybe we listen to some prophets just long enough to write down their words, let them have some influence, but we never really followed them or their words, and sooner or later society kills them. Why listen to a prophet when we've already got the ultimate authority on our side? That is, if we think the ultimate authority is so close at hand that it happens to be ourselves. That's a little tongue-in-cheek, of course. Appropriate to 
the parable, even though all the things I make idols of, including myself, are nearby. Therefore, easy to spot, easy to discern, easy to follow, maybe easy to measure, to quantify, and so on. The actual ultimate authority, as in the parable, is not in this world in that way. God, the vineyard owner, is far off, yet expects us to do the work we were called to do. And finally, God the Father sends God the Son, and Jesus predicts they will do with him exactly as the tenants did in the parable. They're going to kill him too, just to keep things the way they are, to try to keep control, to try to keep more for themselves. Extrapolating from those metaphors, then, Jesus' death will prompt the judgment of the world. He says the stone that the builder refused has become the cornerstone. God, in redeeming the things that we reject, wrongfully reject, God will rebuild the world in, in a way that makes those things right. The things, the people, the authorities we humans so often reject are precious in God's eyes and will be redeemed by God's work in due time when judgment comes. Thus, the safest thing to reject among all our favorite idols is, wouldn't you know it, ourselves. Now, this can be a dangerous text that we just read in Matthew because we might hear this as Jesus saying, God will take the kingdom from those who once held it and give it to someone else, as in, maybe God will take away the covenant from... Oh, let's say the Jewish people, as this new covenant is instituted with Christian people. But our God does not break promises and is not fickle as such. What good would a covenant be, be to us if God was willing to break other covenants with other people? No, this is about any of God's people. This is a parable that is speaking to us, too, as Christians. It speaks to any who see the work they are called to do, who understand the role and expectations of God, and yet repeatedly choose themselves over and over, who those who would enact violence and hardship on others just to keep it so it's my way or the highway is not a text we should hear as convicting someone else, some other group out there, someone way back in history perhaps. This is a text that should ruffle our feathers and make us squirm in our seats because Jesus may well be talking about us and the prophets that we kill. It's with this that we'll turn our attention now to Paul as we've been doing lately. You want to know who's best? You want an example of what it's like to think me is the best? How about someone who's struggling with that same temptation I just mentioned about what it means to be one of God's people in Christ when he had spent his life as one of God's people in the covenants of Abraham and Moses? Well, here's Paul for you. <laughs> he checks all those boxes. If anyone has reason to boast in the flesh, it's him. By heritage, by birth, by practice, by circumcision, by nationality, by race. Anything that gives us the sense that we rolled the dice just right and the circumstances of our birth happen to make us the best. 
Well, for Paul, anything he can think of, he's got it. Side note, did you ever notice how people who believe a particular people group is superior to others and maybe ought to be in charge, how often those people just so happen to be part of the same group they value so highly? I don't think that's a coincidence. It's that me as idol stuff expanded out to the group, but that is a side note because that's not quite where Paul is going with this. Rather, his point is that all the things someone in his particular time and place, the society and culture he grew up in, the things they might value, Paul's got it in spades. If anyone's going to make an idol of himself, it should be him. An equivalent for us might be someone bragging about how their grandparents started the church they worship in and how they were baptized, confirmed, and married there at all the right times, how everything from the basement tiling to the rafters and roof tiles <laughs> were memorials in the name of someone who happens to have the same last name as them. Maybe it's not. Maybe we don't anchor this in a church, but in a community. You get the idea. It's good to be proud of your community, your church, and so on, but there is a limit. When we're so focused on our own heritage, our own stuff, we, by definition, lose sight of something else out there. And that's what it sounds like happened to Paul. And he has this wake-up call. Christ lifts the scales from his eyes, and now he can see. So now what he sees is all that stuff he thought was so important, worth bragging about, worth turning inward for. It's all loss. It's also damage, you could translate it causes him no good, but perhaps harm, probably by drawing his eyes away from where they need to be, by causing him to fixate on this earthly stuff, on himself when he needs to be fixated somewhere else. Moreover, when he compares all this to the gift of salvation in Christ Jesus, even just to know Jesus, he considers it all rubbish, which by the way, worth noting when this comes up, the Greek word there for rubbish, more literally translated, might have been censored even on broadcast TV up until a few years ago. That's how all the best things about himself compare to the gift of salvation. He then goes on to express his own hopes for the future, which might serve as an example to us. He hopes to be found in Christ, to join in his suffering, to join in his resurrection. But then he says, he hasn't quite achieved the goal. How can that be? Isn't salvation once and for all, one and you're done and so on? Well, yeah, it is, but there's an important cultural difference between then and now that we've kind of danced around lately, because it's not quite so extreme as I'm about to present it, but more of a subtle shift. See, we often think of morality as pass-fail. Nowadays, you're either a good person or you're not. You're either spotless in the public eye or you're canceled. And that's not just people, right? It goes for churches, corporations, politicians, you name it. Even more specifically, we often think of virtues as likewise all or nothing. You are generous or stingy. You're caring or heartless. You're honest or a liar. And on and on it goes. Again, I'm generalizing. It's not like we all deal in binary, all-or-nothing thinking all the time, but 
we do lean that way in our moral judgments more so than people used to. Back in Paul's day, it was much more about striving towards an ideal. You could name the ideal virtue, the ideal life, and then strive for it. Even if you knew that ideal, in fact, you did know that ideal, could never be obtained. It was worth working toward. And we were all somewhere between, say, stingy and generous. And the right thing to do was to strive towards being more generous. Not all or nothing. We might say nowadays, why bother running a race if you won't even finish? But Paul would say running it at all is better than standing still. He uses metaphors like that to describe his discipleship, his life in Christ. He's going to forget what lies behind and strain for what lies ahead. This isn't about how bad things were in the past or trying to be perfect now or hitting some particular goal. It's about doing the best he can in light of his best understanding and just going for it, whether he thinks he'll make it all the way or not. So to wrap this up, our sideways connection today between Matthew and Paul is that Jesus gives us a parable that shows us what not to do, which we might say includes the dangers of worrying too much about ourselves, what we get, we get to make the decision, and so on. And Paul sets an example of what to do instead, setting those me things aside and striving for the ideal. Remember from before, we have a tendency to make idols of ourselves. If not for money, it would easily be the top contender for most common idol we put in the place where God ought to be in our lives. While we might consider some perfect version of ourselves, someone who values the things I do, but acts on them, say, more consistently. At the end of the day, we have to settle for what actually is. Our favorite idols are almost always what's close at hand, the things that are easy to discern, and therefore easier to follow. But that vineyard owner is not close at hand, and neither are our ideals. There is no such thing as perfection in this life. If the choice was really between perfection and failure, all there would be is failure. Perfection is out there, though. There is an ideal that's bigger and better than ourselves and worth striving for. Even if we'll never fully get there, at least not in this life, it's worth working on, running that race, doing the work we're called to do the best we can. Because another way of phrasing that Another way of phrasing this striving after this particular ideal that God has placed ahead of us, we are drawing closer to God through Jesus Christ. Not to earn salvation. Salvation is through faith and afforded to us through Christ alone. It's to draw closer to God because of the value of that in and of itself. So when God sends a message, whether that's through prophets today or prophets of old, the word or the still small voice ringing in your ears, we better listen. Because what brings life and peace and salvation and forgiveness, none of that comes from our idols. None of it comes from inside ourselves, no matter how hard we try. Instead, we have to strive for something better, something out there. <laughs>